Welcome to Unexpected Points. I am your host, Kevin Cole. Back at you again this week. We are in the dregs of the NFL season. I have an interesting episode, I think, ahead of us. It's going to be a bit of a deep dive, somewhat similar to what I did last week with Bill Belichick. I got some great feedback on that episode. In particular, I sent out a tweet thread from Michael Salfino about some ideas, some bigger picture ideas that he had about it, which I thought were extremely interesting. And I want to take some of that feedback, not that there was anything negative to it, but I think exploring some of those higher level macro ideas a bit more rather than getting weighed down in the minutia is probably a good way to go. So I'm going to try to do that a bit more with this episode. I also heard um, and got a little shout out from Jason Fitzgerald at his OTC podcast. Everyone should check that out. He had a great discussion on analytics this week at a conference. He was at some comments by Bill Polian. And the gist, for those who uh, haven't listened to that podcast yet, uh, of course, go and do to get to get really the, the details here. But the gist of what he was saying, which I thought was truly interesting, is that even for people like Polian, and I think Belichick falls into this category also, for people who will publicly you know, discount analytics, what they're really doing is they're discounting ideas from the outside. And even from the inside of these organizations, if we're talking about research departments that are siloed in a way from the larger coaching and football organizations, I think that is also viewed as somewhat being an outside voice, even within the organization. And that's how a lot of teams view this. Cause he was talking about how Polian talked with, I forget who it was, his sister or someone like that to get good information on character and more of a psychological profile on players and how he gathered this information, calculated out what that meant for their likelihood of success and so on and so forth, which sounded a lot like analytics, right? But he is someone who publicly castigates things like analytics. So I think there's a, there's a bit of a disconnect there and it's really getting people on the outs on the inside to buy in. And I'm going to talk a lot about that in this particular episode, because this episode is going to focus on the process. Now, obviously that's something that goes along with, Sam Hinkie and what they did with the 76ers, but the the analog in the NFL is what the Cleveland Browns did in 2016 with uh, my man, Sashi Brown. As you can see, if you're watching this on YouTube, I have Sashi here in the background uh, looking over my shoulder at all times. And there was quite an up and down for what happened with the Browns. And I think there's a lot of misinformation maybe misremembered things about not only how well the drafts went. I think that's the big thing that everyone's going to point out at is the fact that the drafts did not go well, that the trading down was a mistake and that the way to build that team, it was really a multi-year tanking quote unquote tanking effort. And I think those are all mistaken. Some more than others sub in degree as opposed to just direction. But I think those are all mistaken. I'm going to walk through a lot of that stuff, talk about not only this applies with the Browns, I think it applies a lot with what the Dolphins did in 2018 also. And also say this is not, you know, a one size fits only formula. And 
so the first thing I think I think I got to discuss, and that goes into this one size fits only formula that people will say is analytics equals tanking. Analytics equals trading back and getting a hundred seventh round picks and then <laughs> doing something with it. And of course, that is that isn't true, right? Um, but the thinking sometimes, and one of the straw men that comes into this is that that's what you do. And I think it really depends on what the situation is. We've seen now a new front office for the Browns. They haven't been trading back when they've had picks. They've been taking players like the left tackle that they took last year when they could. Uh, they've been trading up like they traded up in the second round to get to get a speedy linebacker who they really wanted. And if you look across other sports, yes, Sam Hinkie and what he did with the Sixers, you can definitely point to that and say that was tanking. But I think it's a very similar situation to where the Browns were going into the season because it was a team that had been stuck in mediocrity for a very long period of time. And those are the type of teams where you can really rip the Band-Aid off, you know, strip it down to the studs almost, and then build back up. Whereas, you know, Daryl Morey, who was a mentor to Sam Hinkie in the NBA, when he was with the Rockets, he came in, he didn't do that stuff because he had Yao Ming, he had Tracy McGrady, he had some other players there, and he worked around with the pieces they had, built trying to extend that window because he had the superstar talent, made the trade for James Harden to bring him in. And now, you know, he's doing a similar thing with the Sixers, now that he's in charge there, ironically, is that he is figuring out how to take their superstar talent to the next level, as opposed to analytics equals tanking. Let's start it all over. Let's blow it all up. Let's do those things. And I think that's, that's a big mistake. The second thing I'll say, I'll go through all the different straw men that you see for analytics. And again, a lot of these apply to the Sixers just as much as to the Browns. The second thing is, you know, tanking is a fraudulent philosophy because anyone can do it. You know, if you want to lose, you can do it. It's not difficult to lose. It's not difficult to strip things down. It's difficult to find great players, but it's not difficult to let a bunch of players go and to have a worse team. And I'll agree. It's not as difficult. But guess what? If you're going to rank order actions that you want to take, what are more valuable actions that you can that you can take as a decision maker or in an organization? You want to have number one high impact, right? You want to take actions that are going to be very valuable, but you would also want actions where the the action will lead to a result more easily. That it is easy to do. Like, why wouldn't you want that? That somehow people discount the fact and they say, oh, well, if you if you don't if you if you rebuild, it's something that anyone can do, so therefore it's not valuable. But guess what? We want things anyone can do. That's how you raise the probability of becoming better is by doing things that will be successful. Now, if your philosophy is instead, the real way to do it is to, you know, be like the Golden State Warriors and draft a whole bunch of players who were not ranked that highly and hit on all those draft picks. And then that's the way you win. Well, guess what? You have in the NFL, 32 teams trying to do that. In the NBA, you have 30 teams trying to do that. To be better than all of those teams at what they're doing, to just take the normal formula and be better than them, 
Yeah, it's something that's harder to do. It's maybe something that you can respect a little bit more, but guess what? You're really turning over the likelihood of your success to luck, way more to luck than you are to do something that can easily be executed. So yeah, anyone can do it. And that's because you're lowering the luck factor. And that's what you want to do. Lower the luck factor, increase the value factor. So I, I don't take that. Um, the other straw man that I want to hit right off the top is there's only, you know, there's more than one way to win. I think that's a big one that comes into play with the with the Sixers in, in particular, because you have people say, oh, well, look at these other teams. Like I mentioned the Warriors before, they figured out how to win. Um, you know, San Antonio Spurs figured out how to win with not doing that. The Toronto Raptors figured out how to win a different way. And then within the, within the NFL, it's also true, a little bit more dependent upon the quarterback and getting the right quarterback. But other teams had done, you know, other teams don't have to go through a real strip it all the way down, rebuild like we saw with the Browns and like we saw with the Dolphins. And again, that's true. You can do it other ways. No one's denying the fact that you can do it other ways. And when you're taking an unconventional philosophy, if you're the Browns in, let's say, in 2016, you do what you did, you're really one of 32 teams that is fully embracing it and going forward there. So when you say, oh, well, you're more likely to win if you're not taking this philosophy. Look at all these Super Bowl champions that are not using that philosophy. Well, of course, you're more likely to win. You have 31 teams that are not doing this philosophy versus one that is doing that philosophy. Just as a base rate, you'd be 31 times more likely to be successful, uh, all else being equal, than the one team would be likely to be successful. Same thing with the 76ers. You know, a lot of people saying, oh, you have to win a championship, you have to win a championship. That's fine. If you want to place that as the ultimate goal, and I think that's where people want to get to, but being a dominant team, being a team that was the number one seed in the Eastern Conference, I think that is attaining a goal. And again, you don't have to be better than every other team if, if you're just going to be pointed out as the one example. One team chosen at random is never going to have a better chance of winning uh, a title than the rest of the league combined. So that's an unfair comparison. And again, you're not trying to win every championship, you're just trying to give yourself a better chance in that base rate. And that base rate for winning a championship in a 32 team league or a 30 team league is very, very low. Um, now to get specifically into football stuff here, uh, there's, there's a complaint and I think this is fairly valid and it came out mostly during the Dolphins 2018 run. I think Dominique Foxworth, uh, who I respect a lot, um, he really harped on this. And that was the fact that you're damaging the careers and the potential earnings of the players who remain on your team by going through this awful season because their tape's going to look bad. Uh, most of those players won't be back and won't be on the roster by the time things turn around and you could be hurting their potential going somewhere else. I think all of those things are true, um, but I also think there is a little bit of the flip side to it. I mean, number one, I think these turnarounds are a little bit faster than what uh, – especially in the NFL than, than what people suspect. I think really teams have really only attempted a one year uh, downgrade. And I know that's weird to say that with the fact that the Browns in their second year of this rebuild went 0 and 16, but I'll, I'll talk about why the evidence doesn't really point to them trying to do that in, in 2017. So I, I think that's a little bit of a, of a mistake. We're talking about one season and number two, when you are letting players go now, whether it's with, the Browns, and we had, and I'll talk about this again, Alex Mack, uh, Mitchell Schwartz, who they let go, 
and and some other players. Hey, Alex Mack got to go to the um, got to go to the Atlanta Falcons and play in the Super Bowl. Uh, Mitchell Schwartz got to win the Super Bowl and, and play somewhere else. So you're also giving these players probably a better window. You're giving some players. Now they're not they're the higher end players. Don't get me wrong, but you're giving some players a window into higher end outcomes that they weren't going to have living through this rebuild. Uh, I mean, those two players are very, very old at this point now that the Browns are coming around. So I think that's not being considered. And what's also not being considered is by just freeing up things, you are also giving some players a chance to play who would never be playing on another team that hadn't really stripped things down as far as they had. Um, But you really need a coach to keep things together. And I think that's where it can differentiate the Browns and the Miami Dolphins. Uh, okay. So I think those are the big straw men to throw out there. I also have some other things about picks and the right players. I think this, this is an important thing is it doesn't matter how many picks you have. If you don't pick the right players, obviously, but this one of these tautologies here where you're just going to say, yeah, we all know that's true, but you know, what helps you pick the right players is having more picks Yeah, with the same skill level for a particular draft evaluator and for, uh, whole department of personnel making those drafts guess what's going to help you hit more players it's having more picks so i think that's just a a silly thing and it's really just meant to say that people like sashi brown were not good evaluators and that's why they failed when in reality there's a whole room full of scouts and others who were helping with with these evaluations so to just put it on one player i think uh, one person is a bit of a misnomer and that's a that's a silly thing Okay, so let's let's start off maybe historically here. For those who don't remember, I'm going to go back to 2016. So Sashi Brown was already with the organization for the was already with the Browns. He was elevated not to GM, so he was elevated to executive VP of football operations. He brought in Paul DePodesta, and that is where the association with analytics really became a thing. Now. For those who don't know, Paul DePodesta had a history in baseball analytics, although he was a football player when he when he went to Harvard. He was a uh, wide receiver, and he did have a short stint doing some work in the CFL on uh, on some of the, the management side. But he was known for baseball. He was characterized by uh, in Moneyball as by by Jonah Hill, which was always is always funny because Jonah Hill really embodied the nerd in that sort of role. Whereas Paul DePodesta is actually, like I said, he was a wide receiver. He was he is kind of more of an athlete himself. So he's really the guy that was associated with the turnaround with the with the A's. He also worked with the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers, and then he also worked with the Mets before coming over to the Browns. So he's making that transition in. Now, most decision makers will tell you, and all models have been done on decision making, is you want to have good decision makers in the organization more so than the most knowledgeable people about that particular sport. And I think Deep Podesta really fit that mold, though he was knowledgeable, as I mentioned, from having played football in the past. So he's brought in and also at the same exact time in that 2016 offseason, Andrew Barry was brought in. He is the VP of player personnel. So he was made the top personnel guy, like the top scout, top personnel guy um, at 
the Browns. And now, of course, Andrew Barry is the GM getting a lot of plaudits, which he deserves. But again, Sashi was the one who brought him in, starting to build that organization. Now, the next thing that happened is really probably the most consequential thing that turned at least the chance for the first regime, if you want to call Sashi Brown there, really for his chance for surviving through and for the about face that was taken when Dorsey was brought in and Sashi was fired before the end of the 2017 season. So the most consequential thing was the hiring of Hugh Jackson. I think there have been many interviews with Andrew Barry, and when he talks about it, he will say specifically this whole alignment thing, alignment, alignment, and he's even he hasn't said straight out that it was a problem with Hugh Jackson in the past, but he has said that that's a big difference from when he was here the first time, because they didn't have alignment. Now he didn't he didn't specifically say head coach alignment either. So again, I don't want to put words into his mouth for 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 trashing anyone, but I think it was pretty obvious that they did not have that with Hugh Jackson. And it's not just a matter of a misread that they brought in Hugh Jackson thinking he was the right guy and they misread him and things didn't go well for that, for that reason. The reality is that it's been reported and I'm going to assume this is true, but of course we should take everything with a grain of salt and not be overconfident. It's never been refuted in any way. It was reported by uh, Seth Wickersham when he wrote an article about the Browns a couple off seasons ago after their troubles in uh, 2019. It was reported that he, he meaning Sashi Brown and Paul DePodesta and that wing of the front office did not have Hugh Jackson as their top choice. That their top choice was Sean McDermott who, of course, the next year, not that year, but the next year went to the Buffalo Bills. And I think we can see with the way that he has harnessed the talent there, the way that he has been this kind of steadying presence, which I think is really, really important as part of alignment and obviously something that Kevin Stefanski embodies now for the Browns. Um, I think it's fair to say he's a good coach. Sean McDermott is a good coach. So Sean McDermott is the guy who the if you want to say the analytics guys, but whatever that, that wing of the front office wanted and that Hugh Jackson was the guy that Jimmy Haslam and D Haslam, the owners wanted. So who ended up being the coach, Hugh Jackson, of course, Um, it was something they had to work with, but I think it was the first action that eventually became something they couldn't get around because when you don't have that alignment and it's not really, really strong there, when things start to go poorly, then the fingers come out. The pointing of the fingers come out. And I think that's what we saw more than anything is that in the owner's ear, Hugh Jackson was the one who survived there uh, over Sashi because the fingers came out and he trusted him. They almost made that, which would have been just an incredibly awful trade for, for AJ McCarron because of the fact that Hugh Jackson couldn't see it through. And what's really interesting about this is that sometimes you can't help but 
you can't change someone. You can't change an owner. Now, there's a very, uh, it's very interesting interview with Paul DePodesta, where he was interviewed about discussions that he had with ownership before coming on. What did he talk to them about? And he said, "What is?" Because they asked him, "What do you want from ownership?" Uh, Jimmy and D Haslam asked him, "What you know? What do you want from an owner?" And the analogy that he gave, I thought, was was really really perfect for this scenario. And he said. Well, I can't, I'm not gonna tell you what I want, but I'm gonna tell you what I don't want. And he didn't want a situation where he uses this analogy of, you know, you take your kids to an amusement park. They want to go on the big roller coaster. They want to go, you know, the scary, the, the scariest thing, the, the most exciting thing that they, that they can do, because that's going to be like, let's say maximizing their fun, right? Maximizing their enjoyment. And they're about to get on there. They get on to the last second. They say, you know what? That looks too scary. I'm, I'm out of here. I'm going to get off. And he says, that's what a lot of owners do. That's what happens to a lot of owners. They say, hey, we want Moneyball. We want the discipline approach to what we're doing. But when it comes time to making hard decisions, they say, you know what? I don't want any part of this. So he wanted an owner that was going to get on the roller coaster with, with them. And I think initially they had that because beyond the Hugh Jackson thing, which is a big mistake, uh, Haslam has said, you know, we're going to give this at least a few years. This is a several year rebuild. He was saying all the right things. And the one credit that I'll give Haslam is the fact that he never displaced Paul DePodesta. Okay. Paul was always there in his role as a chief, uh, like the strategy officer there. He was the reporting directly to ownership. So he was never lost in this. And I think that's really the reason they were able to build it back and to get back on track with bringing in Andrew Barry and bringing in Kevin Stefanski. So I'll give him credit there, but he did cut bait on, on, uh, on Sashi. He did almost, he did approve and they almost make that AJ McCarron trade, which would have been awful. So there were some, some things that were off there, but I think Paul had it hit perfectly for what you want is you don't want someone who's going to jump off. And that kind of goes part to why I think this is a useful exercise to look back and we don't want to be results-based in what we do. We want to be process-based. But I do think the more time that passes, you can actually, a lot of the time, get a better view of the process because the ups and downs and the emotion of what's going on in the moment can really color everything that we do. And I mean, I can remember that 2017 season, which eventually led to Sashi being let go. I mean, even from the outside, I was feeling pain seeing what was going on there, seeing Carson Wentz play like an MVP, seeing Deshaun Watson also kind of play at an MVP level before he got injured that season, seeing the team lose over and over again, even close games that they were losing, that they should have been winning some of these games over and over again. When those things are happening, when players are getting cut that who now eventually are actually on NFL teams and look a lot better than they thought they were, and they look really bad for drafts, when those things are happening in the moment and in the NFL where everything is a, a microscope in that week-by-week week basis, it's really, really difficult to get a sound, rational evaluation. And I feel like we can do that a little bit more now as part of this exercise and not get caught up in it as much. Okay, so the first thing uh, I'm going to detail through is looking at the 2015 roster because that gives you the starting point for why this rebuild was done the way that it was, which was a massive rebuild in that 2016 offseason. So the team was three and 13 in 2015. Okay. And if you go back and you say, okay, well, let's look at going back even further, right? 
Uh, let's look, go back to the Browns franchise page here. I'm going to look to get the information. And so they were three and 13. They were seven and nine the year before that in 2014. They were four and 12 the year before that five and 11, four and 12, five and 11, five and 11, four and 12. And then going all the way back to 2007, you have 10 and six, but then even before that four and 12, six and 10, four and 12, five and 11. I mean, it's just been misery for the longest time. Uh, And that is a perfect situation, honestly, to say, we're going to do this huge rebuild Um, because you need to snap out of that. There's no incremental really building off of what you have. Uh, I mean, look at the roster for 2015 after their three and 13 seasons. This is going into the the major rebuild. Josh McCown was the quarterback that year. They had Isaiah Crowell, who the the Browns actually retained. Um, He was a restricted free agent tender. They were able to put on him because he was an undrafted free agent initially. So they retained him again not just letting everyone go. The wide receivers, Andrew Hawkins, Travis Benjamin, Brian Hartline. Um, Duke Johnson was also there as a rookie. Gary Barnage, remember that one year that Gary Barnage had where he was really good as the tight end. And then that's just I mean, just awful, right, for, for skill position. And then we'll start to get into some of the decisions that were made. So I think the most criticized thing when it comes to the Browns is the way that they really strip things down for the rebuild. So the two major players that they let go and they let these guys go as part of an idea that we're going to sit out of free agency this off season. We're going to open up cap space. We're going to roll over that cap space going forward, which is important because as you start to get good, if you have more and more rollover money, you can spread that out and not be you know, out of money when you have to sign players. We're going to roll over that cap space. And in the NFL, you kind of have to pick and choose when you're going to be involved in free agency because you won't get the comp picks, right? If you're involved in free agency, signing players who, are, who haven't been released, who are coming off of their contracts at the same time as your guys are leaving, you're going to cancel out a lot of the comp picks. So the, the, the plan was 2016, we're going to take it off because we're going to allow players to go. We're going to collect those comp picks to jumpstart the rebuild. And then we're going to come back into free agency right the next year. Okay. This, again, this is not a multi-year thing. They did not have the talent to say, we're going to, it's going to take multi-years to peel off these players. This was a ready-made situation for a short strip it all down, rebuild in one year. So they let Alex Mack go. He went, supposedly he wasn't going to sign with them anyway. Uh, He was not going to sign with the Browns anyhow. He went to the Atlanta Falcons. He ended up a third round comp pick. They let Mitchell Schwartz go. Now Schwartz ended up going to the Kansas City Chiefs. He supposedly was, um, he was okay with coming back to the Browns, but they didn't sign him. And You could view that as a mistake. He obviously would have been useful the last few years. But again, we're talking about two players here. Alex Mack, who's 35 years old, who is going to be the starter, I believe, uh, for San Francisco this year. But obviously well, well past his prime, right in time for when the Browns are establishing this window where they can really win, right? Um, So he hasn't been playing at a high level for, for a couple of years now. And then Mitchell Schwartz, who is currently without without a home. He may come back to Kansas City. We'll see this year. But again, he's 32 years old. So there was more method to this than just letting players go, right? They were, these were players who were a little bit on the older side. And now when the Browns are hitting the thick of their rebuild, 
they aren't around anymore to be very valuable players. I mean, like I said, Mac is going to start, but he's on the, the end of his career. So they got a fourth round pick for Mitchell Schwartz. They let go of safety Tayshawn Gibson. They got a fourth round pick for him. And they also let go of Terry, uh, Taylor Gabriel. I think they might've gotten a, a fifth round pick for, for him. So they got all of those. They got all of those comp picks as part of this. Again, the, the method was let's stay out of free agency so we can collect all of those comp picks the following year. Then we come to the draft. Okay, so Carson Wentz is the big thing, the big decision. And it's been, talk about a cycle that you can go through. And I don't want to pin too much on where we are in the current cycle of Carson Wentz, which is on the downside, right? Uh, I don't want to be overconfident in saying, see, told you so. Carson Wentz wasn't worth it because now, at least according to my projections, he's, in the mid twenties, as far as how good of a quarterback he was, because remember at one point in time, and this is an often quoted thing that happened during the 2017 season when Wentz was playing on that MVP level. Although we know looking back that Wentz's MVP level play was highly predicated on converting third downs at an unsustainable rate, which are huge leverage plays, right? Um, Being able to escape pressure and playing that well under pressure which again, tough things to sustain. And he hasn't been able to sustain that going, going forward. But regardless, um, the, the, the quote that came out more than anything else was again, Paul D. Podesta, maybe he should stop doing interviews, um, was talking with, uh, on a radio show. And we was talking about this, these comments got distilled to saying Carson Wentz, not a top 20 quarterback. And that was getting thrown at them over and over and over again. But if you listen to the exact wording of the comments, they're actually a lot more subtle and logical than you might think. And I'm going to read you what, what Deepa Desta said as part of this interview on the rationale for why they decided to trade out of that Wentz pick. Here's what he said. He said, I think the hardest part and where you have to stay the most disciplined as much as you want a player, you can't invent him if he doesn't exist In any given year, there may be two or three NFL-ready quarterbacks at the college level. In another year, there literally may be zero. There just may not be anybody in that year who's good enough to be a top-20 quarterback in the NFL. Even though you have a desperate need for one, you have to resist the temptation of taking that guy just because you have a need if you don't believe he's one of those 20 guys at the end of the day. I think that's the hardest part, just maintaining your discipline because you have the need that's what we did this year. And he goes on to hedge even further in that saying, you know, we may be wrong. We might be wrong about this, but we have to use the information we have. And that information was largely that he was an FCS quarterback. So he wasn't against that high level competition that he had been injured and he didn't have a very large sample size. And that those things did not, in their opinion, warrant using this pick in this first year of a rebuild where you're starting from scratch, throwing them a little bit to the wolves, honestly, as a rookie in that situation, as opposed to really letting this rebuild play out and getting that high pick for the following year and reassessing at that point and deciding what to do at quarterback. Um, But if they had the confidence on him as being that top, top guy, I'm sure they would have been okay on it. Uh, what's also interesting in this discussion is that there's a little bit of a interview, I wouldn't say oral history, but an interview, uh, like inter- combined with interviews and a discussion by, 
I believe is Shio Kapadia, but I know maybe some others at the Athletic also who work with the Eagles, talking about what went into that Wentz trade. And I think it's really interesting, first off, that Sashi drove a pretty hard bargain on that. If you look at what they ended up getting out of it, I mean, they only you know moved back to eight, it was, I believe. They got an extra first and second in the, in the following year. They got additional picks also on top of that in later rounds. So they, they got a lot for, for that pick. They drove a hard bargain. And there was this back and forth where uh, Roseman said, no, we were not going to give that to you. Sashi said, fine, um, we'll just, we just won't do the deal. And then Roseman had to go to ownership, had to go to Jeff Lurie and get that and say, you know what, we, 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 we even after saying we're not going to do that, come back and say, you know what, we are going to do that. We, we are actually going to make, going to make this deal and met the price that, that Sashi wanted. So it wasn't like he, they were just giving away the pick, number one. Um, number two, when it comes down to the history of what happened here uh, and what Roseman said as part of this article, he had this weird rationale for Carson Wentz. And he said that because he was this unique prospect, because he was a prospect where they didn't have the information that they would normally have on a prospect, they didn't, they didn't have um, an FCS top school guy with a long history because they didn't have this there was more uncertainty and therefore we could not rule him out and that was why they wanted him which is kind of a weird way of phrasing it. it's kind of taking this thing this uncertainty which you think would be a bad thing because of the downside but instead saying hey that uncertainty applies to both directions and we can't rule him out as not having the upside because of that uncertainty so i'm not Quite sure. I think I'm not sure if, if Roseman's explanation is actually correct there or if that's good thinking. But he was saying, you know, our analytics guys couldn't give him a thumbs down, basically. So therefore, that's why we wanted him. And I think there was some desperation there from where they were in the cycle. They had a lot of great players. They needed to move up um, and they needed that piece to, to move forward for, for, for the Eagles and when it happened. So um, so this is the trade goes down. And because of that. You are, in the short term, your prospects get worse, right? You're trading for future picks if you're the Browns. So by definition, you're moving capital into the future. You're moving wins into the future. You're moving them out of the 2017 season that's coming up, and you're moving them into the future because you are trading down not only once but twice. Um, Again, if you want to see like how optically, how bad – this Wentz trade looked in 2017, not only did they trade out of Carson Wentz, who looked like an MVP, they traded with Tennessee, the next pick who traded back up after trading out of one. Um, They traded with Tennessee, the next pick who took, um, uh, why am I blanking on this right now? Who took a current left, current right tackle for the Browns. Uh, I don't know why I'm missing, messing this up here. I just totally froze. Um, the current right tackle for the Browns. Why is this not working? Um, still not coming to me. Uh, Jack Conklin, of course. So, so they, they, they who took Jack Conklin there. Conklin ended up being a first team All Pro as a rookie. That probably was over. Was overplayed, right? 
Um, but still, so they traded out of that one too. So they traded out of Wentz. They traded out of Conklin, who was a first team all pro that season in 2017. Now, of course, Conklin's back with the Browns. So interesting how, how things work out. And then one of the picks that they got in the 2017 draft, and we'll talk about this in more detail going forward. One of the picks they got in the 2017 draft was that number 12 pick, which they traded out of again, which became Deshaun Watson. So it was all of, as part of this Wentz trade, traded out of Wentz, traded out of first team All-Pro Jack Conklin, traded out of superstar rookie before he tore his ACL, Deshaun Watson. Bam, bam, bam. I don't know if you can get worse luck than that as far as what those who those players ended up becoming, right? Uh, at least in the short term. So in the longer term, Wentz doesn't look so hot. Conklin, they were able to sign into a second contract. So the, the Titans didn't even get a second contract out of them. Uh, I don't think they know no fifth-year option. I don't think either because of some, some injury concerns. And now he's, he's helped solidify that offensive line. And, you know, Deshaun Watson, what's going on with him now is really an aside, you know, as far as the sexual assault allegations and that stuff. I don't think that's really, obviously it's not part of the evaluation, but he looks great. He does. He, he did look great. So then I think you probably could more so say the results are definitively poor as far as, as far as that's concerned. Um, but I think what's important is now looking at the 2017, I mean, the 2016 season is they went one in 15. Now, if we're going to go by, what the results should have been, let's say. So if we use like Pythagorean wins, which is a formula for, it's a more accurate way of looking at how good a team was and it, uh, it's a better predictor of future performance and it uses point differential, right? It's roughly dependent. There's other ways to calculate it, I think, which may be a little bit more accurate, but I'm going to use the traditional way, which is point scored squared divided by the sum of point scored squared plus points allowed squared. So the higher the differential there, you have the lower numerator and you'll have um, and then you'll have a big denominator with the points allowed based in there. And then that's going to equal out roughly to the fraction of games that you should have won. So your win percentage. So in both the, in both 2016 and 2017, which I'll talk about later in 2016, they were about a 25 percent. As far as their Pythagorean wins, that was their ratio. So they should have won. 25% of a season, four games. So somewhere between three and four games, both both seasons. Uh, so that means in those two seasons, they should have won anywhere from six to eight games, you would think. Uh, maybe a bit lower when you factor in some other things. But still, at most, five to seven is, 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 is as bad as you're going to get there. They won one game in two seasons when they were supposed to win five, six, seven, eight games, according to their point differential. So they got unlucky even versus how they performed. So I think that also feeds into people's perception of how bad those teams were um, is that they had one win, right? When they should have had many more wins. Now, as to whether that is a coach factor, and I think it's convenient to say, well, you know, Kevin Stefanski, they did very well this last year, even though their point differential was not so, not so hot. And it's because of Kevin Stefanski. And then before when Hugh Jackson was there, they did poorly. And that's a Hugh Jackson problem. Now there might be something to that on a long enough timeline, a long enough sample um, that coaches know how to eke out victories. But, you know, if we would have, you could have used the, you could have used the argument that Adam Gaze was a great coach before he came to the Jets because they were eking out all these victories. They had awful point differential versus their wins 
when he was in Miami and they were going to the playoffs, even though the team stunk or was not, was a mediocre team. They were winning way more games than they should have. So it, it doesn't always work that way. So I don't want to pin this all on Hugh Jackson. It's probably a healthy portion of bad luck with maybe some coaching underperformance there, right? Because if you look at after this 2016 season, where they say, again, they should have won three or four games, but they only won one. Um, going into the 2017 offseason, and I think this is the biggest mistake that people make looking at this Browns team because they see the 0 and 16 in the 2017 season. And they say in their minds, they say that means they were tanking. They're still tanking, right? Uh, they weren't trying hard enough. Then they weren't trying to win then. Yeah. They, they, they could have had Alex Mack. They could have had Mitchell Schwartz. Well, not Alex Mack because he probably wasn't going to resign, but anyway, in some people's heads, if they, maybe if they really made him a Godfather offer, they, they could have had him. So I agree with that, but there's really not evidence that they were tanking going into this 2017 season or that they wanted anything like an 0-16 season or that they were aiming to go get the number one pick in order to be able to draft a quarterback in the 2018 draft. If you look at what they did, the first move that they did to get better was before the 2016 season was even over. They traded for Jamie Collins from the, uh, from the Patriots. Move didn't work out, clearly. But even Collins went back to the Patriots and did play well. So, again, after that. So maybe it's more of a coaching thing than it is a player personnel thing. But but they traded their what was going to be their third-round comp pick for Alex Mack. They traded that for Collins. They signed Collins to a, to, a, to a good contract. So, again, they were trying to bring in talent in preparation for the 2017 offseason to be able to make the pitch to free agents that you need to we, – we, we're trying to win now. Let's not – focus too much on what's going on with um, the bad season and the talk of tanking and all that sort of stuff. So they brought in Collins and then in free agency that year, um, they made a few signings, which really points to the fact that again, they were trying to win in 2017, despite the results. Um, They signed JC Treader, who they still have there at center who's been excellent. Remember, they lost Alex Mack. I agree. Great, great player. J.C. Treader there. After, not 2016, but 2017. He's been there ever since. Excellent player. Uh, great signing for them. They signed Kevin Zeitler, who was one of the top, top guards in the NFL. And he came over from Cincinnati. He had a relationship with Hugh Jackson, so I think that helped. Um, but again, big money there. They signed Kevin Zeitler. And he eventually ended up being the trade for Olivier Vernon, um, whether that was good or not. Uh, you know, I don't know. It's kind of a wash. But the thing with Zeitler, which is interesting, and I think it's a good, maybe an analytics type of move, is that guards, when you have this camp space, guards are maybe one of the positions you can find in free agency sometimes, at least the top, top end talent, because the offensive line, their free, their franchise tags are all the same. So you're going to want a franchise tag, a tackle, but you're not necessarily going to want a franchise tag, the lower uh, interior lineman. And that's why we see top players like you've seen Joe Tooney and others who have been able to, to leave. Um, they signed Kenny Britt. Now that was a bust uh, signing. I liked at the time, but if you think about the alternative at that point in time was Terrell Pryor. Now Terrell Pryor had this breakout 2016 season. He had a thousand yards He was obviously the converted quarterback. He was offered the same deal that Kenny Britt got. He turned it down. Uh, He wanted more money. 
the Browns took some heat. Sashi Brown took some heat for not bringing back one of their good players in uh, Terrell Pryor, but then the market really wasn't there for him. And he ended up signing a one-year deal with the, at the time, Washington Redskins and, you know, didn't really do anything. So again, Britt didn't end up working out that well. And again, it was a kind of big stain on, on the Browns um, combined with in the NFL draft the year before. And I think the Corey Coleman pick really, those two things really played into this, you know, this being uh, a bust, a bust and a bad and a bad draft or bad evaluator in Sashi Brown. Uh, again, in this season leading up to 2017, they extended Joel Betonio, six-year extension. He's been rock solid, been great ever since. So they did all of those things. They tried to sign Tony Jefferson, who was a free safety for the Cardinals, uh, former UDFA. Supposedly they offered him more money than he took with the Ravens, but he went to the Ravens. So, you know, they're trying to make moves. They're trying to make all these moves. And they had some young players. Now, I know if we look back at the 2016 draft, it was really castigated at the, at the time, but it doesn't look as bad when we look back on, on some of these guys because, again, like I said, they traded capital into the future. Corey Coleman, obvious bust. Now, a lot of people like Corey Coleman, so I don't think you can necessarily say that that was such a huge mistake. The second pick, Emmanuel Ogba, at the top of the second round, he was someone who was eventually traded for Eric Murray, who was a, who knows another safety. Again, this is a Dorsey situation where Dorsey came in and kind of got rid of these guys. So they got rid of Ogba, but yes, guess what? He's making five, $7 million a year now for the Miami Dolphins. He had 10 sacks last year. So he is an NFL player. I think if we were looking back on this team in 2017, we would have said he was not really an NFL player. He is. Carl Nassib. We, we all know about Carl Nassib, at least a little bit more in front of mind now because of the fact that he he came out as being gay, the first uh, openly gay player who's going to be active this season. He signed a big deal with the, with the Raiders not that long ago. He was just straight cut in order to make room to bring players in off of the waiver that, that were on the waivers from other teams, which is really a strange move by Dorsey. But again, they don't really count these guys. Um, Sean Coleman, still on, he was the third round. He's still on the 49ers, but, you know, swing tackle at best. He, unfortunately missed the entire 2019 season with injury and then opted out of 2020. Uh, Cody Kessler, that was a miss. Now that's a pretty big miss. If you think about if that was really the guy they wanted, they must've really been going for accuracy there and that didn't work. Joe Schobert, he made a pro bowl. He signed a huge contract, probably a mistake with the Jaguars for about 50 million over five years. So that was a big, big downer. And then, but again, we're already in the fourth round here. So they had a lot of like fourth, fifth, sixth round picks seventh round picks that didn't end up working out. But again, their fourth, fifth, sixth round picks. They also had Richard Higgins though, in that draft in the fifth round who was still on the team. So they got, you know, a handful of NFL players who were still on rosters. If you look at Ogba, um, Nassib and Schobert and Higgins, all these guys are still productive. So that's four players that they got who are still productive and on NFL rosters. But in the, in the 2017 ish sort of range, it didn't look so hot. For, for what they were trying to do there. Um, so again, the 2017 season, they should have won three or four games, didn't end up happening. And then they get to the draft and we're already looking at, yeah, they traded back out of the Watson pick, 
but they made th- three first round picks. They weren't trading back a lot. They got Njoku, they got Jabril Peppers, who has come around a bit. Again, another NFL caliber player, a big part of the Odo Beckham Jr. trade because he was viewed, according to Dave Gettleman, as being like another first-round pick. Miles Garrett was great. But I think what's interesting about Garrett, I remember going into that offseason, the very very beginning of the offseason, I was wondering whether or not Garrett should have been the number one pick. Now, it was kind of a galaxy brain sort of thing at the time, but I was thinking, should you ever take anyone at number one overall other than a quarterback? Now, it's weird to think that that was the no-brainer pick in a draft that had Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson in it. I was into Watson at the beginning of the offseason, not knowing as much about Mahomes. By the end of the offseason, I had Mahomes as being my number one quarterback, props to me. Um, and I think that the the Browns were going to take Mahomes at 12, and that's why they but they didn't like Watson as much, and they traded out. Um, I mean, supposedly the Bills thought that Mahomes might be available after trading out of 10. They didn't realize that the Chiefs were coming up to get Mahomes there. So that's not maybe the craziest notion that 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 at 12 that, that they were going to get him there. And they, they didn't think they had to trade up to get him. So I think those are legitimate gripes there is that those are mistakes that they made, not going up and getting the quarterback that they wanted when they supposedly had some interest in Patrick Mahomes there. Um. But if you look at the rest of the draft, Njoku, not so hot as, as a pick there. And you go further down, uh, Deshaun Kaiser, I thought that was okay at the time to get, get him in the middle of the second round as opposed to paying up for Watson and Mahomes. Obviously, that did not prove out to be the case. Larry Ogunjobi, uh, he's no longer on the Browns, but he is, again, another NFL player. He has signed a contract uh, I'm not sure where he's where he's at, honestly. But I think he's on a one he's, a, he's on a one year deal right now. Um, let me look it up real fast. He is on a one year deal with the Cincinnati Bengals. So again, another another at least NFL player there. And but again, misses. And they're not getting any of these late round picks to hit. Howard Wilson, Roderick Johnson, Caleb Brantley, Zane Gonzalez, who was actually probably one of the best kicking prospects coming in. Has, it didn't work out, but he at least made 50-yard kicks as opposed to uh, you know, other kickers who ended up going a second round for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Um, so altogether, I think when we get a look back on this, it probably wasn't as bad as we think. And the philosophy that was being at play here, and I think this is the overarching sort of stuff that I should discuss more, is – you know, you're not taking any running backs. They already had Duke Johnson. They had they were willing to pay for Isaiah Crowell to stick around initially. And I think that's what kind of the way to do it. If you can pay two, three million dollars to someone to stick around rather than uh, use a draft pick for another running back, that sounds great. And I think we see when Dorsey took over, he of course he took over in the year where the Browns had the most draft capital you could ever possibly want. They had a lot of insurance, you could say. And I'm going to seamlessly transition here to talking about insurance for our sponsor. And that is Western and Southern in these uncertain times, life is full of questions like when should we start talking about life insurance, but however difficult these questions may be, Western and Southern can help you answer them backed by over 130 years of experience together. We can look ahead and leave the unknown behind Western and Southern financial group, life insurance, retirement and investments, compensated endorser products issued by member companies of Western and Southern financial group, Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, so he had, you know, the, let's think about this. They had the number one pick, number four pick, the number 33 pick, the number 35 pick. 
They had two picks in the third round. Also, they had all these, all these picks. Actually, no, wait, they had another, they had another second round pick, the last pick of the second round, which was around from the Carson Wentz trade. So they had all these, all these picks, but now Dorsey was there. So we know what happened. And that is Baker Mayfield at one. That is Denzel Ward at four. That is uh, Nick Chubb at 35. But then before that, Austin Corbett, who they ended up trading away for basically nothing at 33. I want to talk about those picks. And I have some uh, quote unquote sources, sources at the Browns who I spoke with about, you know, what would Sashi have done in this situation? And I'm not going to say who the sources are, but I will clarify that it's not uh, Dave Giuliani who was on the podcast. So it's not, it's not even an analytics person there. Um, so I asked them because I, well, I was making some, I was doing some theorizing about what happened uh, with that draft and why and what Sashi would have done or the old front office would have, would have done with Baker Mayfield. With, I guess Baker Mayfield would have t- been taken at one. Maybe they would have traded out of four. Uh, they wouldn't have taken Nick Chubb, things like that. And I think I was generally right, at least according to what this uh, somewhat high-level player personnel uh, person had, had told me. And what I heard about this was that this I'm going to quote here from what, from what I heard here was definitely still take Baker no matter who the GM is. So whether it was Sashi or not and Ward as well, uh, don't take Corbett or Nick Chubb. So Nick Chubb actually looks pretty good so far, but don't take a running back for the 35th overall pick. I think it's pretty obvious. And that wasted pick on Corbett looks like that, that would have been a good move there too. Um, although when it comes to Ward, the clarification that I got there was that, you know, Sashi definitely doesn't take them at four, probably trades out. But this person thinks that no one else was going to take Ward that high up. There was no reason really to take them that high. If they would have moved back into somewhere between five and 10, they still could have got him there uh, pretty easily. So that's kind of the, the way that they think it would have played out was Baker, still get Ward, get an extra pick. Um, and then the second round, you're going elsewhere. You're not going to, you're not going to Corbett. You're not a guard. You're not who I think they were eventually, I think they're going to use them to replace JC Treader. And that would have been a mistake. Treader was, was, was great at center. Um, and then not going Nick Chubb. So they would have lost out on Chubb there. Right. Um, so that, that all plays into what would have happened there. So it would have been fairly similar now to go even further in the future. And I don't want to get too much into the details here. You know, would they have traded for Odell Beckham Jr.? All those things we don't really know, but I think they would have been in very similar circumstances where they are here. And I think the key when you're looking at whether it's the Browns or the Sixers, who I mentioned before is by accumulating all of these picks, there can be mistakes, right? Again, you're kind of dummy proofing this thing. So even though Dorsey traded away the third round pick for Terod Taylor to come in. He had this huge signing of, of different players. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. He had the huge picks for Corbett. Um, the Nick Chubb thing ended up working out, I would, I would say. But still, at the beginning of the second round, not exactly the best value here. Didn't trade back for Ward, even though he probably could have traded back and still gotten Ward. Even though all these things happened, it still worked out okay, Right. Uh, wasted a third round pick on Chad Thomas because he went to Miami and Alonzo Highsmith, one of his deputies went to Miami. It seemed like that was a connection there. So again, you can, you can do all these things and still end up being okay. And then the key though, is that Andrew Barry is back in there. Kim Stefanski, who Paul DePodesta again, wanted to hire. It's been reported. He wanted to hire the year before and not go with Freddie kitchens, which ended up being a disaster. 
Um, so they were right there. So if you get the macro perspective here, I think there's a lot more that was right than wrong. But it really fell into this NFL environment where you're only looking at what's the next thing? You know, what have you done for me lately? What's going on this week? And that's what hit them in 2017 so hard losing those games. And that's what ended up causing Sashi to be, to be fired. Um, but I do think it's fair to say, what are the potential mistakes? So trading back for Wentz or Watson, was there a miscalculation of the value of the quarterback? Potentially. Um, but I don't give any credence to arguments about if you get the right quarterback, it doesn't matter how much you paid for him. I've heard that before. I mean, that's just stupid, right? It's just, it, that makes absolutely no sense. Um, you know, yeah, if you if you have the right lottery ticket, it doesn't matter how much you paid for it. I mean, of course, you know, it doesn't matter if you paid, uh, if, you, if you got a thousand lottery tickets, if you knew one of those was going to win you a million dollars. Yeah, great. But you don't know that. So there's no if in this circumstance. It's like, you're not, it's not a realistic scenario. And it does matter, right? Like, even if you were trading up for Trevor Lawrence this year, let's say, one of the greatest prospects you could possibly have. I mean, there is a point where you're not willing to pay, right? Now, maybe not within the context of the NFL, where you can only trade away three first round picks into the future. So maybe you'd be willing to do that. But let's say you could trade more than that. Let's say you could trade five first round picks. I mean, are you going to trade or you trade every pick in your draft, right? So you say, oh, I'm going to trade every single pick from my 2021 draft, every single pick from my 2022 draft, and every single pick from my 2023 draft. Is that too much? And there is a certain point that every single person, even the people who say you can't pay too much, there is some point that those people are going to look and say, yeah, I'm not going to pay that. So that's your starting point. That's your analysis. That's actually doing some thinking and doing some value analysis, not saying you can never pay too much for the starting quarterback. Because if that was the case, you would have teams giving away everything and quarterbacks would be going one through, you know, 10 every single draft to just go for any possible quarterback that you can, you can have. No, number two potential mistake was not having a credible veteran quarterback in 2017 and taking the 0-16. Now, I think there's some credence to that because that's what the Dolphins had, the credible veteran quarterback, when they brought in Ryan Fitzpatrick, right? Um, and they he kept them out of getting Joe Burrow, though, right? <laughs> Even though they were supposed to be the tanking team, they did not get Joe Burrow. He kept them way out, obviously, uh, of being in contention of, of getting Trevor Lawrence, as they did extremely well last season, mostly because of him, but also because of Tua. But... Um, yeah, I mean, I think you could look back and you can say that, but they did have a second round quarterback who they drafted into Sean Kaiser. I think they wanted to get some reps too. And they did have Brock Osweiler who wouldn't have been great. It would have been a disaster probably, but they did bring him in. They could have kept him around. They could have gone for someone else. So I agree that they could have, but would it have been better in a vacuum to say, we're going to give this, this mediocre quarterback the run rather than giving our second round pick to Sean Kaiser, the play. I mean, they got like historically bad play out of Sean Kaiser. So even in a vacuum, you would assume someone who could run the ball like him would have done better. Um, and even despite that, they were winning. They were, the score differential in these games was close enough that they should have won a few games. So I think it's something you can say was a mistake, but I wouldn't 
say it's a definitive mistake. And maybe even for the Miami Dolphins, looking back, maybe Ryan, having Ryan Fitzpatrick there wasn't the greatest thing because it took them out of contention of getting Joe Burrow, and instead they got Tua Tungavailoa. Uh, and they supposedly were interested in in Joe Burrow, so it could go either way on that. But I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a fatal blow. But I wouldn't be I wouldn't have been against bringing in more of a veteran to really compete in 2017 since they were already pushing chips in there in in free agency. And lastly, I mentioned taking a quarterback at one rather than Miles Garrett. That's really the thing that I want to think about going forward because especially with the money that you're going to have to pay Garrett going forward, it is interesting to think whether you should always be looking for that quarterback or always looking for a, a, maybe a lighter trade back where they could have gotten someone like Patrick Mahomes uh, going. And that's a really interesting thing, but I don't think you can, but that was such a slam dunk pick that sometimes you lean towards what the establishment is doing and you can't be worried about that. So to wrap up here, we're processing the Browns process. I think we can see that, yeah, they did what you may think is the easy thing, but if it's so easy, or some people may think is the easy thing, but if it's so easy, why are more teams doing it, right? Uh, but they gave themselves plenty of capital to make mistakes and still be successful, just like the Sixers have done, just like the Dolphins have done. They haven't done everything right with their picks, but we're now we're seeing three franchises, at least in this case, who really leaned in to the hard reset and rebuild, and they're all seeing success now. Uh, they may not all have Super Bowls. You may be able to still point to other teams that are going to do better. But again, it's a limited sample of teams doing this who are all having success now. Um, and you could say the Jaguars even did something similar, right? Where they did a little bit of a rebuild and now they have Trevor Lawrence coming in and we'll see how they do going forward. But the key here is NFL rebuilds, short time period, and we need to have patience and not jump all over thing, everything from the beginning. And I know, like I said, my man Sashi here looking back at me, He's now with the Wizards and working there. So much success to him and much success to uh, Andrew Barry and the rest of the crew over there. They are our Browns, and I'm hoping that they will continue to do well in the future. Got any more questions for me? Go ahead, shoot me an email, kevin.cole at pff.com. I got a few emails based upon giving it out last week, and I appreciate all of those. Otherwise, I'll be talking at you again next week. (laughs) 